Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On the pod today, we have NBC political analyst and former communications director for George W. Bush, Nicole Wallace. This is our first Republican in the Pod Save America days, Dan. Oh, it's a huge moment for the pod. Finally, got to hear both sides. Um, get out of our liberal bubbles. We get, yes, we are piercing the bubble today. That's all we <laughs> By have By calling to do. another coastal elite. Right, right. Who, who doesn't like Donald Trump? Perfect. Also, remember, on Pod Save the World this week, Tommy interviews a good friend of the pod, Heather Higginbottom, about her time in the State Department working for John Kerry for many, many years. Also... A reminder to subscribe to Anna Marie Cox's new podcast with friends like these. This week, she interviewed MTV News's Ira Madison, and so that's going to drop on Friday. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still about to head out. Love It or Leave It live on tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. Okay, Dan. 
So we were going to start with the transformative joint session that transformed Donald Trump's presidency <clears throat> two nights ago. But very then, presidential. Ve- very I mean, presidential. Very presidential. He's, it's it's a whole new ball game now. Everything he's done that's bad before is wiped away, and we have ourselves a unifying, successful president on our hands. Very yes. exciting stuff. But yes. then we had a couple uh, stories break last night, which we're just happy they broke last night and during, not during the pot. I know. He, but, you know, things are starting to move in our direction after a tough couple months. <laughs> And look, we're only doing this pod right now because we know that Jeff Session will probably recuse himself from the Russia investigation <laughs> while we're recording. So hope this is this is why we're doing this. We'll just keep talking until it happens. Um, <laughs> so let's start with the New York Times story, which is not about Sessions, but might might end up being the bigger story in the long run. Um, this is a story. The t- the title is Obama administration rushed to preserve intelligence of Russian election hacking. Three bylines, Matthew Rosenberg, Mike Schmidt, forget who else. Anyway, basically, the story is, is the Obama administration came to a close and learned more about the Trump uh, campaign's contacts with Russia, Russian intelligence, Russian government, people tied to the Russian government. The White House tried to spread the information to as many government agencies as possible to prevent Trump, the Trump administration from covering up, covering up or destroying the evidence. This meant that they lowered the classification of some reports so that more people could see them. Um, for the very classified, uh, sensitive information, they decided to put like names of sources and stuff like that. They decided to make sure those were in places where people with only the highest clearance could access them, so to avoid having Trump political appointees try to cover them up. Uh, and basically, tr- they tried to leave a trail of breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs for investigators. I mean... If this thing didn't sound like a fucking spy novel, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I, I couldn't even believe it when I was reading it. But perhaps the most explosive paragraph in the whole story was the second one. American allies, including the British and the Dutch, provided intelligence describing meetings in European cities between Russian officials and associates of Donald Trump, according to three former intelligence officials. The intelligence intercepted communications of Russian officials within the Kremlin discussing contacts with Trump associates. The missing information here is none of the people that went on background with the New York Times know the content of those meetings. They, they do not know what was discussed between the Trump associates and the Russians in the European capitals or what was being discussed in the Kremlin. So that is still a mystery. I guess it could have, again, it could have just been Christmas greetings, like between Flynn and Kislyak. <laughs> could just be, hey, what's up? Hey, I look forward to working with you in the future. Maybe just some above-board business deals. I don't know. What do you think, Dan? I mean, maybe they're, maybe it's some sort of vodka for Taco Bowl exchange. I don't, you know, who knows? But maybe they were talking also about interesting the new would be treaty. not just the content, but the actual, like, who are the associates? Are they right. the same people who were mentioned in the dossier from a few months ago or weeks ago, whatever that was? But... So who are they? What are they talking about? And why didn't the Times lead with it? That is, I think, a fair question to ask. Why didn't they lead with who the people were? Or just the fact of the meetings, right? The fact of the meetings seemed to be uh, more newsworthy than the efforts to preserve the intelligence, which is also very newsworthy. Yeah, the whole thing is newsworthy for sure. But you're right. It seems like, well, the big question in all this has always been like, 
you know, it's one thing, I mean, it's one thing if American intelligence agencies are know stuff or have been spreading stuff or there's this whole, you know, conspiracy, you know, is the deep state and, you know, the intelligence services in America, are they, do they have it out for Donald Trump? But the addition of, you know, it's, I've always been curious, the addition of the British and the Dutch intelligence agencies too, like, it's, it, there's a high possibility that there are other intelligence agencies all over the world, specifically in Europe, that also know things about the contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians. And also I go back to like, I keep asking everyone this that I know, like what, give me just an innocent explanation for all of this. <laughs> you know, like, so, so, so we don't go down the conspiracy road. Like, what is the innocent explanation for not just Flynn's call with the ambassador, which you could sort of say, oh, maybe that's just business he's talking about, you know, that, that happens with all incoming administrations and the people that they're going to work with all over the world and the officials they're going to work with all over the world. Fine. But it's like Flynn, it's Manafort, it's other, it's, you know, they're investigating Roger Stone, they're invest. I mean, it's just like, there's a lot going on here. Seems very yeah, coincidental. Yes, it. That's exactly right. I can almost buy, almost buy the Flynn calls to the Russian ambassador being in the in the realm of the normal course of business during the transition. Right. right. Clearly, some too. real questions about violations of the Logan Act, but in general, I can buy the idea that the incoming national security advisor and officials from foreign governments would communicate in the transition period. It's odd that the Russians were the ones he spoke to the most as opposed to, I don't know, the British or the Canadians or others, but especially, especially not just because the Russians are some big, scary adversary, because we know they had just interfered in our election to try to elect Donald Trump. Yes. They had committed committed a, we talked, they were talking about a country that had committed a cyber attack against us, but anyway, But anyway, I think it's worth going through a little just to put it all in perspective, because it does feel like 100 years ago since we had the presidential election and we had a, a formerly a podcast formerly known as Keeping the 1600 and talked about these things. Mm-hmm. But so let's let's go back. Sure. There's a point in time where during the I guess it was the was it the Democratic convention where or the Republican convention where Trump held a press conference and told the Russians Democratic to, convention. Democratic Convention told the Russians to hack the hack Hillary Clinton's emails. He at the time had a campaign manager who had worked for many clients in the Ukraine who were very close to Putin. He at the Republican Convention, they adopted the most pro-Russian platform in the history of the country um, and, and, under and most republicans of the convention were like what are you doing why is the trump campaign changing the platform it's always yeah, it's said an, this about russia it's and an suddenly odd choice making these right. changes it's an odd choice right and then russia hacks the election they hack the dnc to oh, sow oh, chaos wait, during the democratic convention you forgot you forgot one thing before that on august 21st roger stone tweets John Podesta is about to spend his time in the barrel. Roger Stone, close, close associate of Donald Trump. That is a couple weeks before the DNC hack, that the hack is released of Podesta's emails. Somehow he guessed that John Podesta, somehow he guessed that John Podesta was going to be in some trouble. Trump's closest associate, a man who refers to himself as a quote unquote rat fucker because of all the dirty political tricks he's pulled, happens to just suggest that possibly a senior Clinton campaign official was going to have problems right before 
WikiLeaks published emails hacked by Russians from said Clinton campaign official. I'm not saying where there's smoke, there's fire, but this doesn't look great. This this would be the most smoke where there was no fire in history of, yes, of the, of that, the that smoke fire of the smoke fire metaphor. <laughs> there would be yes. no other time where there was this much smoke and absolutely no fire. Um, and we, also, I think you and I can say this as senior officials on many campaigns. It's very fucking weird for campaign staff members to be communicating with intelligence officials from countries with an adversarial position towards the United States. Yeah. That's weird. And it's yeah. even weirder when said country then interferes in the election to elect, to, to help elect one of the two candidates. When, when it's, you're, all, it's very odd. When you're already in the White House and you go on foreign trips with the president, you are extra careful about anyone that you talk to, especially in certain countries, because you don't know if that person may accidentally be an intelligence official in that country. (laughs) It is always something that is on the minds of people who are in politics and people who have official roles to be careful about what you say around different people, to have, like, operational security. I mean, this is, yeah. So, come on. Well, all of this brings us to... Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions III, um, <laughs> our, our attorney general. Um, so, Washington Post story last night. Let's let's back up and sort of walk through what happened here. During his confirmation hearings, under oath, Al Franken asked Senator Al Franken asked Jeff Sessions, "Quote: If there's any evidence that anyone on the campaign communicated with the Russian government during the course of this campaign, what would you do?" Jeff Sessions responds, quote, I have been called a surrogate of that campaign from time to time, and I did not have communications with the Russians, end quote. Sessions has now admitted to meeting with the Russian ambassador while he was serving as a top advisor and surrogate for the Trump campaign in September of 2016. Now, two meetings Sessions had with Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, one in his office which he's trying to say is in the course of normal duties as a senator on the Armed Services Committee. Sometimes senators on the Armed Services Committee meet with foreign ambassadors. Um, He just happened to forget this meeting, of course, uh, under oath. That happens all the time. Uh, It also is the case that they interviewed 20 other members of the uh, Armed Services Committee, and none of them met with Kislyak during that time, just, just at Jeff Sessions. And a second meeting. Sessions had with Kislyak. Where was that? Where was meeting? that meeting? John? Where was that meeting? It was at the Republican National Convention. <laughs> Why did Jeff Sessions meet with the Russian ambassador at the Republican National Convention? Is that where Armed Services Committee members meet with foreign ambassadors at a Democrat at a party convention? Why was the Russian ambassador at the Republican National Convention at the exact moment that the party that? Trump was adopting the most pro-Putin platform in history. Was he just visiting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and stumbled upon the convention? It was like, oh, there's my buddy Jeff Sessions. Let's talk about some business. Like, what? I, <laughs> I mean, just, it's insane. It's insane. And, and why? He clearly lied. Like, yeah. he gave false <laughs> testimony. That is beyond a shadow of a Can doubt. Can I just say, it is, it is so revealing uh, under the category of Donald Trump is not the beginning and end of our problems, 
that all of these fucking conservatives are tweeting like, well, you know, I mean, they're like parsing the language. Did he really lie? Or, you know, he just he just didn't remember that meeting and those meetings are fairly common. It's like, no, 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 no. Did we like this is from the lock her up crowd. This is from the people that were yelling lock her up <laughs> when Hillary Clinton was not after Hillary Clinton had been exonerated and, and and the FBI decided not to even investigate or to continue an investigation of her to have an indictment or to prosecute or, and do anything like that. There were lock her up chants everywhere. But yet here we have Jeff Sessions clearly not telling the truth under oath. Clearly <laughs> whether he intentionally lied, whether he forgot the meeting, whatever, but it is clearly not the truth. You don't forget the meeting. Two meetings. That's not a thing that happens. You don't forget two meetings with the Russian ambassador. Right. One at the me, meeting with an ambassador at a convention seems like something that wouldn't slip your mind when you're under oath. Yes, and it's not like maybe he has bad short-term memory. He's forgotten a lot of his sort of previous racism at times. But that's not. It's not like he was just asked on the street by some dude. It was during a confirmation hearing where he did. I presume, hours upon hours of prep. What was the number one story in America when he was doing, when he was going before the committee? Russia's involvement in the election. So yeah, that's why September 2016. This, they could have, like, oh, they, they, they knew they this was yeah. coming up. And he chose to be dishonest about it. And the question is, why? Because... Would it be mildly painful to just say I had these two meetings in the course of my business as a member of the Senate Armed Service Committee? Sure. Would there have been some headlines about it? Sure. Would he still have gotten confirmed? Probably. But what is worse? But so, I mean, there's no more trite statement than it's not the crime, it's the cover up because it's also the crime. Right. Especially in this case, possibly. But this is an example of. He either it's an innocent thing he stupidly lied about, but he still lied, which is a crime for which you could be, quote unquote, locked up. Or there's an actual thing there that he was willing to risk perjury to avoid admitting to. And that's crazy. So the explanations for this explanation, number one from uh, from Sessions office is, quote, he did not remember in detail what he discussed with Kislyak. Uh, second explanation from Sessions himself, very carefully worded. I never met with any Russian officials to discuss issues of the campaign. That there's there is specific intention in that statement. And then you then he said, I have no I, I know I have no idea what this allegation is about. It is false. It's hard to it's hard to call someone fa- call an allegation false when you don't know what it's about. Um, but then. John Harwood gets an explanation from a Trump administration official who says there were, quote, superficial comments about election related news. So they did discuss the election. Womp womp. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I just I don't I don't know. I don't know how he can go on here. I mean, so did you see Sean Spicer's response this morning? Yes. Yes, I did. He did nothing wrong. Period. <laughs> I was like, "What?" Fake news. Fake news to distract from the president's amazing convention, uh, amazing yeah. joint session address. Um, so we have a handful of Democrats calling for um, sessions to resign: Nancy Pelosi, Elijah Cummings, Elizabeth Warren, um, a whole bunch of other Democrats, including Joe Manchin 
who voted to confirm Jeff Sessions have called on him to recuse himself from the Russia investigation, along with the following Republicans, Rob, Senator Rob Portman, uh, Jeff Flake, Jason Chaffetz. Oh, Jason looks like the, he wants to look at his wife and daughters in the eye again. Jason in the house. Um, <laughs> and uh, Kevin McCarthy, who called for him to recuse himself on Morning Joe and then walked it back an hour later on Fox and Friends. Now, the person, of course, now, right as I was coming up here to do the uh, podcast I saw on CNN, uh, our friend Paul Ryan did not join that chorus. Paul Ryan. Paul what? Ryan, Get, no, stop. Can you That's imagine? That's fake news. It's so, it's so weird because Paul Ryan is the uh, intellectual darling of the official Washington, you know, and he's like he, a straight shooter. He's a man from Wisconsin who likes to do P90X and is strong in his biceps and his convictions. That he's Paul a Ryan. Seri- he's a serious politician, that Paul Ryan. He's, a, he's yeah. one of the serious ones. He's one of the grown-ups. Uh, he, said that, he said that basically Trump should, um, Trump should not, I mean not Trump, uh, Sessions should not recuse himself unless Sessions is the target of the probe. Just like I said, what? Like, how, how does Ryan feel? I wonder if Ryan, it ever bothers Paul Ryan that he is now one of the biggest Trump sycophants, even within the Republican Party. You know, he can just taste. He can taste the tax those tax cuts. cuts for the millionaires. They're so close. That's like all he in wants. one hand, he can almost reach tax cuts for millionaires. In the other hand, he can almost reach taking health care from poor people. This man has worked his whole life to do those two things, and he, and he is not in his let, grasp. He is not going to let a little perjury stand in the way. No. Millionaires need tax cuts when the Dow's at 21000 Everyone says that. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Okay, so we don't know what will come of the session's news, although it will probably have broken by the time you're listening to this, some kind of development. Um, But let's move on to the greatest speech ever to be delivered by any president in history, including the Gettysburg Address, including Lincoln's second inaugural, (laughs) including you have nothing to fear but fear itself and Kennedy's inaugural. Let's talk about the first joint session 
from Donald J. Trump to just two nights ago. Um, Can I, I think the question you have to ask yourself, John, is has any president ever stood up before the Congress before and used complete sentences written for him, not said anything racist, and not called the media the enemy of America? Has that ever happened before? Not that I can tell. Not that I can that's tell, wh- certainly. That's why this is seen as, as one of the great pieces of oration in not just American history, civilization. Look, I'm just uh, I'm just in uh, Obama Kool-Aid drinking rube, right? So maybe you, I... You are so jealous of Stephen Miller. I'm so jealous of Stephen Miller and his abilities. Um, I mean, let's start with what, how did it feel to... Uh, it was weird. Why, I mean, you know, we just had eight, eight Obama joint sessions in a row over the last eight years. Uh, how did it feel watching this one? Watch, just the fact that there was no Obama. Wasn't that weird? Yeah, I, it was It was weird. I, the, I will say, so I worked on every one we did through 2015. And by work on meeting, I just talked to you and Cody about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't actually have to like put real words to paper, but I had to read it many times. And like preparing for the State of the Union for the speechwriter is like the worst thing in the world, but it's not awesome for anyone else either. And so I appreciated last year having to do nothing more than just like get like read it once. And Me then too. this year was like, it's kind of nice not to have to think about it. But it is a gut punch to have the to have the guy do the and the, pre, the and the president of the United States and have that be Donald J. Trump walk out. That for was me, hard. it was still it was weirder for it to be Trump than it for not to for it not to be Obama because I remember I watched most of Bush's State of the Unions as well, you know, and it was weird. I just remember watching Bush's State of the Unions and thinking we should ask Nicole about this, um, but like. There would always there would be this bad news about Bush and Bush doing making all kinds of bad decisions that we disagreed with in Iraq and all that stuff. And somehow Bush would still go to the State of the Union and he'd give a pretty good speech, you know, and he'd have some good stagecraft. And it, like there were a few moments during some of Bush's speeches where I'm like, you know, don't like the guy, think he's destroying the country, but right there he's trying to sort of bring people together he's i appreciated the speech writing sometimes i thought like michael gerson and that crowd like they did a good job with the speeches um and it just seemed like normal it seemed somewhat normal george bush is president don't agree with them think he's doing a horrible job but he's president and it feels normal donald trump walking into that chamber was just like what the fuck is going on right here it was it was brutal man yeah not good but um, I will say the best headline about this speech f- was that I saw was from uh, Ari Melber tweeted this, which was atypical politician gives typical speech. That that to me is the fair analysis of Donald Trump's speech is that like he he got up there and he gave a state of the union that was uh, long, fairly boring um you know, more trite and cliched than usual, since all State of the Unions have uh, a lot of cliches in them. But Donald Trump's was extra cliched. The writing was just a little bit more terrible than most other. And I say that not about forget about Obama, because obviously I'm biased, but worse than any speech George Bush has given, worse than any speech Bill Clinton has given, worse than it. And I've read a lot of State of the Unions in preparation for writing Obama's. And this is certainly one of the worst written State of the Unions that I've, uh, or worst written joint session speeches that I've ever seen. And yet, yes, it was better than any of other, any Donald, any of Donald Trump's other speeches. Um, I don't know. What'd you think? I, yeah, I think that's right. It was fine. 
right? It was fine. fine. This is the Axelrodian dancing bear deal. Yes, the bear do. danced, and we're ex- we're and we didn't. We're not critiquing how well he danced. It's just he got through it without embarrassing himself. Yes, when a bear yeah, when, 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 when a bear dances, given. you don't critique the, the dancing. Man you just, who is the you leader just, of the free world? Yeah, when a, I wish you just say the uh, the dancing bear thing, since I think we last talked about that in the Keeping in Sixteen Hundred Days. Axelrod would always say, "When a bear dances, you don't critique the dancing; you marvel at the fact that the bear is dancing at all." And I think Trump had some pretty bad dancing uh, <laughs> on uh, on Tuesday night, but yet a lot of people marveled at that he was dancing at all. Uh, that was the story of that joint session. I mean, look, some of these some of the lines in that speech. The torch of truth, liberty, and justice is now in our hands, and we will use it to light up the world. The dreams that fill our hearts, the hope that stirs our souls. Every hurting family can find healing. We all bleed the same blood. Ugh. He also at one that point is, that is talk- a true statement. <laughs> at one point, he was talking about his election because, like, of course, he has to talk about his election, and he said, uh, "Eventually, the chorus became an earthquake." I mean, so, I, you know, Tommy pointed this out on our live stream, but comparing comparing yourself to a natural disaster isn't always the best move, I think. Yeah, that's a solid point. I'm not, I hadn't really thought about the consequences. Do you, is an earthquake what you want? It may be what, it may be what Steve Bannon wants. <laughs> um, but also, look, I had said, uh, even though I'm out of the predictions business, I said earlier in the day, uh, on Tuesday, I wonder if we were going to get a speech that was fairly standard- uh, with a whole bunch of poll-tested lines. And certainly, whether they tested the lines or not, I could tell as I was watching that speech that there were a number of lines that would do very well with swing voters and, you know, even non-swing voters, right? Like, lines like, I'm not going to let America and its great companies and workers be taken advantage of anymore. America has sent $6 trillion to the Middle East, all while our infrastructure at home has crumbled. I can tell you, because almost every politician that I've worked for has used some version of that line, that that thing polls probably at 90%. Yeah. Like, that was a lot. I, I, John Kerry used to say, we're opening firehouses in Baghdad and shutting them in the United States of America. It was his biggest applause line in 2003 and 2004. That's what that reminded me of. Like, they're, they're just... So, I don't think it's magic or necessarily takes an incredible amount of talent to put a speech together where you drop lines in there that are somewhat nationalistic in an economically populist sense um, that are going to appeal to voters um, across the political spectrum. And they did that. So, like, you know, good for them. Uh, It was also a speech that you could tell was, like, nominally fact-checked. Like, there were plenty of um, untruths in that speech. He said a lot of things that were false that he'd said before, uh, just like he always does. But there was a few, there was some language that was hedged here and there. So you could tell like it had gone through a little bit of fact checking, even though, you know, I'm sure it got like 4,000 Pinocchios. Um, so they definitely like, they tried to sand the roughest edges off his usual speech. Um, and that seems like it. Yeah. That was certainly enough for, the collective pundit world to just faint with joy. Uh, <laughs> it, I have to say, we we watched the speech at Funny or Die. We then went on and did our Facebook live stream. We answered people's questions. And I walked out of there feeling pretty good. I was like, he gave his speech. We had a good conversation. We got some great questions. I'm not going to let myself be bothered by what I'm hearing 
uh, via Twitter, because I wasn't watching TV, that all these pundits are falling all over themselves about the speech and saying how presidential he is. And then yesterday, the more and more I read about everything, the angrier I got. Because it's like, look, I'm not saying that everyone should have, that they should have cut from the speech to the CNN studio or on MSNBC or on Fox and had everyone say, that was a horrible speech. Donald Trump just gave a disaster of a speech. He's still a disaster president. No, it would have been totally fine for people to say, you know, that wasn't as crazy as a normal Donald Trump speech. He made it through the whole thing. He stuck on prompter. He probably delivered uh, a speech that might have been effective with, uh, with some voters. But now the question is, does he have any real plan? What are the details? Can he bring Democrats along to get anything done? Can he heal the divisions within the Republican Party over repealing and replacing Obamacare, figuring out an infrastructure bill, figuring out tax reform? These are the challenges that still lay ahead for Donald Trump. Also, here's a bunch of things that he said that were incorrect. Like, that to me would have been fair analysis. Starting to say that, like, that was the moment he became president and knocked it out of the park and Grand Slam and Reagan-esque and all the other shit that you heard. It was just crazy to me. Yeah. You could tell, you know, we were on a text chain, you, me, Tommy, our friends Cody Keenan and Ben Rhodes. And you could tell that you and Tommy were not consuming as much news as Ben and Cody and I were because we were getting more and more worked up as the hours after the speech went by. And I know. And I was like, not, don't worry, you guys. You were not showing my outrage, which is so unusual. I know. It must have been annoying because I was like, guys, I'm not going to be upset about this. It's fine. We just had this yeah. nice dis- nice conversation yeah. with real people who asked questions. Don't worry about it. And then I, yeah. and then I like sat in bed and started checking my Twitter feed and I was like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's your first mistake. No Twitter in bed is yeah, like an no. important rule. Well, tell Emily that. Yeah, she, <laughs> she, she would agree. Yeah. Um, I mean, like the Politico headline, was this the Trump that could win in 2020? It's fucking February of 2017. What are you writing that for? <laughs> it's mainly so people will click on it, you and I will yell about it, and then people will go find it and click on it again. That's right. basically, that's win, their business plan. Win for Politico. Um, I thought it was funny. Jeff Schessel, former Clinton speechwriter, wrote in The New Yorker um, that the Washington Post calling the address, quote, surprisingly presidential, is like calling an athlete's performance surprisingly athletic. <laughs> Like, <laughs> yes. That was a great point. Like this whole idea like he was presidential is a is an adjective you use during a campaign about a candidate who has never been president, but something they do during the campaign think you think, okay, that's presidential. You can't say that a fucking president is acting presidential. That's their job. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> this podcast is surprisingly podcast like. <laughs> here's Here's I think this this is uh, Derek Thompson, who is an editor at The Atlantic. Yes. Uh, tweeted Derek. this that I thought was pretty interesting, which sort of, I think, explains a little bit of the gross overreaction here from the press is the fundamental bias in punditry is not towards, quote, presidential behavior or against, quote, resistance. It's more simply pro plot twist. And then he followed up. Narrative shifts are great for television, so great that it's irresistible to manufacture them in the absence of actual shifting narratives, which is exactly right. Like this is – what's a boring story? Trump is still quasi-insane. What is an interesting story? Huge shift. Is this the new Trump? Pivot, 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 shift. You know what? Amazing. I think think there's something else that might be going on too with some of these folks, which is – Everything in Washington, all politics and all punditry revolves around 
both sides, the both sides narrative, right? Like you've got to be fair, you've got to be balanced. There's too much partisanship. And so the way to solve partisanship is to attack both sides equally and to give both sides credit sometimes. And there's always has to be this balance. And because of what Donald Trump has done and said throughout the campaign and through his first month in presidency, the balance has been severely off. And most of the media has been, we would argue, um, and some Republicans have argued, <laughs> rightly critical of Donald Trump for mainly lying a lot. He doesn't say anything that's true, neither does him or his administration, um, on many, many, many occasions. Um, and doing things way outside the boundary of any Democratic, Democrat or Republican president, right? And But you can tell with a lot of these reporters, as, as Trump has attacked the press and attacked the media over and over and over again, um, you know, working the refs, it, it has... Maybe it's subconscious, maybe it's not, but it has a psychological effect on you where you start thinking, I got to find I got to find a moment to praise Trump because all I'm doing is criticizing him. And so I've got to get my look how fair minded I am. I, I praise Trump when he deserves it badge, which you can then wear proudly around Washington. So then you can go back and criticize him like and I don't I'm not saying this is a nefarious feeling to have like I, I it's a very human feeling to have. But but. To me, that's a little bit what was going on Tuesday night. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think I would separate the reporters For who sure. wrote about the speech and the people who were, quote unquote, analyzing it on Twitter or cable TV. I think the reporting was, you know, a little there was certainly an element of surprise that he did not do something insane, which is fine, frankly, fair, legitimate, fair, which is totally fair, fair. and relatively straight and I think pretty consistent with the way in which state of the unions are generally covered. You get the benefit of the doubt in your state of the union. Yes. We certainly did. You look at you went you go back and look at the coverage of some of the ones that Bush did in the darkest days of his post Katrina presidency where he it's you get to be president and you're treated as president and people kind of push aside some of the the environmental political factors around you to let you, you own the stage that moment. Um, so I think there's some of that, but I do think if you are, if you are someone who analyzes politics for a living, you look for opportunities to not be seen as just a partisan hack. And this is a, this is a moment to do that. What bothered me was the, was two things. One, the degree of just it was so it was, it was a degree it was so exaggerated it didn't need to yeah. be that exaggerated you could have yeah. said like you said this was surprising from trump it was unusual he stayed on script without like resorting to these i mean ugh. it just it was a good reminder to me and i'm glad you just separate out reporters because media hierarchy right number one reporting is essential and vital and a lot of people have been doing an outstanding job at it right that's reporting number two Opinion journalism, voicing your opinion, as long as you're being honest about your partisan biases, here I am, this is what I believe, and now I'm going to argue the point. That's also valuable. At the bottom of the pile is useless punditry and political analysis, which is severely broken. It is severely broken uh, in in the media right now. And um, it's just like the electorate doesn't need to know whether pundits were impressed with Donald Trump's ability to um, not trip over himself and, uh, you know, his ability to read full sentences on a prompter. What, like, what people need to know when they watch a speech like that is, was he telling the truth? Um, 
could his plans and policies pass? What is the path to making sure they passed? How what he said might affect their lives? The, that, that's actually what people need to know when they turn to the speech. They don't need to have other people guessing what they thought of the speech. Yeah, that, <laughs> that is a silly is exercise. Is what is if you were if you John Favreau were on cable TV or I guess a funnier die live stream and you said as a per- person who has written many state of the unions or worked on many state of the unions, I you know he did he accomplished the following things you try to accomplish in a state of the union, right? He did some well, he did some poorly, he did them all well, did them all poorly. Like that's analysis. What is a huge mistake is to say is for media types podcasters included, to project how they think voters or the public will interpret it. Like, that's not your job. And history, in this election most particularly, proves that you're not very good at it, ourselves included, apparently. Um, So just analyze, you can analyze the, the you can analyze the performance, you should analyze the substance first, the, like, what were they trying to accomplish? Do you think they accomplished it? I think it's also fair for people who have worked in politics for a long time to analyze how they, you know, based on some reporting and discussion, how will the hell respond to this? Did, do you think he made any efforts to bring Democrats on board to his plans? Did he help consolidate? Like, that's good. But when you start saying that this is going to ch- fundamentally change political dynamics, it, that's just it's guessing. Right. And, no. and I'm look, I'm, it's I'm not fine. a good use of time. I'm fine with them going to voters uh, at some bar and talking to them about what they thought, because like that's at least asking real people what they think. And, you know, like I'm I'm sure that those people are going to like the speech because a lot of them liked all of our speeches. Like like you said, the State of the Union is an opportunity. It's a softball over the <laughs> that you can sort of just knock out of the park because it's like it's a set piece. You have time to prepare for it. There's uh, little room for error. And a lot of them are very popular with voters all across the spectrum. I, there's no shock here that a bunch of people like that speech on my behalf, you know. But it was also a good, it was a good lesson to me that um, when Donald Trump says or tweets some crazy thing, oftentimes the opposite happens of what happened on Tuesday night. And uh, everyone, all the pundits, us included, and we did this a lot during the campaign, will say, oh, that's the end of his presidency. He's done. He said and tweeted this crazy thing and voters are going to hate him, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, he gives a speech like this and everyone says, oh, the presidency's transformed. Everything's better. Like, it matters so much less what he says and and w- how he performs and what the optics are than what he actually does and what the policies are and what the actions and decisions are, you know? And we need to remember that both when something bad happens and when something good happens like what happened to him on on tuesday night and i think we forget that i mean it was interesting like i saw yesterday like van jones was sort of um talking about why van jones on uh, the night of the state of the union said you know this is the night he became president period right he's one of those people who got really excited about it the next day he was saying well the reason i said that is because democrats need to be aware that if donald trump starts doing this all the time and giving these speeches all the time and, and, and starts being, you know, rhetorically sane, then we have real problems and he could be there for eight years and we might not beat him. And I think Democrats need to realize, like, if we think if we think that we need Donald Trump to tweet crazy shit in order to beat him, then we should throw in the towel anyway, because that we have the way to beat him in 2020 is not to hope that he is always crazy. It is to attack the policies that are hurting 
average Americans. And there will be plenty of those policies. And if there aren't, then we're not going to beat them. But if there are, we have to attack them for that. And we just have yeah. to remember that. Yeah, he's not going to beat himself. I think. I mean, not to be overly harsh about it, but that was sort of some of the 2016 strategy was step back, let himself light himself on fire. And in a polarized world where Donald Trump will get 85 to 90% of Republicans, it's not going to work that way. Yeah. We didn't talk, we should talk briefly about the, uh, the big moment in the speech that everyone was talking about, which was, um, you know, uh, to tell the whole story, Chief Petty Officer William Ryan Owens, a Navy SEAL, had died during um, the military, military operation Trump ordered in Yemen uh, a few weeks back, or a month back. Um, over the weekend, Ryan's father demanded an investigation into his son's death. Earlier that day, uh, earlier the day of the joint session, Trump was asked about this on Fox and Friends. He said, they, the generals, lost Ryan, which was extremely disturbing. Um, and then, um, so then at the speech, uh, Ryan's widow, Karen Owens, comes to the speech and Trump recognizes her to sustained applause. It was obviously tough for her to be there. There were tears in her eyes. And, you know, it was this moment. And then and then Trump said, I'm sure Ryan's smiling down at us and happy that he just broke a record because of the applause, which is such a weird Trumpian thing to say to measure the whole thing based on applause. But anyway, um, and everyone said, you know, this was like his Reagan-esque big sort of moment. And it was just it was something it also bothered me because like not from like not from Karen Owen's side like I'm glad she came and I can't imagine what she must have been going through and like good for her for coming and being strong and standing there and like you can't take anything away from her whatsoever her husband was a hero and you know uh, it it was it, like you know that it was an emotional moment I was you know emotional just watching her standing there but um to sort of assign this to Trump seemed weird to me particularly since he then said and we did and mattis told me we did uh, gain valuable intelligence from that raid when 10 u.s officials yesterday said the opposite so why is he i don't know that i've ever read a story where someone had went and got 10 officials from across government talking about something like you know what the rule is two (laughs) they were just like (laughs) we're just gonna go we're just gonna stick the knife in and and twisted in Trump. I, I, like, I don't know what to think about the moment. I agree with your assessment. Like, my heart goes out to Karen Owens. I mean, it, I mean it was, it's heartbreaking. It's, you know, I can't imagine having the strength to stand there as she did. Um, I'm much more cons- – what bothered me about some of the analysis of the moment was they – and I'm not even that bothered by the weird record standing ovation thing, like, that's weird to me, but fine. Right. But it, the, to analyze the moment without including two points, one, that earlier that day, Trump had passed the buck on it. Right. Could you uh, imagine if Obama had sat there and been like, you know, Benghazi wasn't my fault. It was the general's fault. It was someone else's fault. And then invited a Benghazi widow there to sustain applause. And then no one mentioned that Obama had said that earlier in the day yes. that he blamed the generals. And they did the weird thing to try to win an argument about the raid, um, citing Mattis, basically hanging Mattis out to dry on it. And right. but even and then the next day, as we're still analyzing this moment, it comes out that the Trump White House is considering a policy change which would remove Trump from the decision making process on raids like this. So he's going to completely pass the buck, where he can take credit for all successes and be distanced from all failures. Uh, before we get to Nicole quickly, uh, 
What did you think of the Democratic response by former Kentucky Governor Steve Bashir? I think he did as well as you can do in a terrible environment. I went back and looked through all of the responses of the last, like, you know, 16 or so State of the Unions, and it is a killing field of <laughs> of promising politicians who've gone to do it and emerged diminished. You just can't compete with the State of the Union. So in some ways, like a lot of people have said, um, why did you pick a retired 70-year-old politician to deliver it as opposed to one of our rising stars when we have a rising star problem. And I think the main thing is we didn't want to sacrifice our rising stars um, to look poorly in this. But I think Bashir did pretty good. I mean, he was better in the format than 90% of the people who normally do it. Yeah, I thought so too. And I I thought... I think focusing on one issue as opposed to trying to launch someone's political career in that setting is probably the better idea. I thought it was like the people sitting quietly behind him in the diner was like a little weird, but um, yeah, it's like yeah, the, a mannequin challenge slash. Yeah, it was, a little, it was a little mannequin challenge ish. Okay, when we come back, we will have NBC political analyst Nicole Wallace. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. On the pod with us today, we have NBC political analyst and former communications director for George W. Bush, Nicole Wallace. Nicole, welcome to Pod Save America. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan, so this is exciting. You are our first Republican in the Pod Save America era. We used to have a bunch on Keeping It 1600, but for some reason... We haven't had a chance, so... We're all in the witness protection program. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tim Miller's hided out, been hiding out somewhere. We've been trying to get him on, but he's, uh, <laughs> he, he won't join. Um, so let's, let's start with the news of the day. Um, do you think more Republicans will call for a special prosecutor, for Sessions to recuse himself and to appoint a special prosecutor. We've seen a few this morning, but do you think this yeah, ends I mean, up I'm a stampede or what? the TV before I called. I mean, I, I think it's up to four, right? And they're not squishy Republicans like me. They're hardcore Republicans like Daryl Issa and Rob Portman. Uh, so I, I think this is a, um, I wouldn't say that the dam is broken, but you guys, I think, are in uh, California. You've Right. I mean, the, the dam is very strained. We're watching it. And I think this White House is handling, as you guys know, I mean, it's, it's, it's never uh, the crime or the alleged crime. It's the way you handle it. And they're handling this question of contact with, with Russia in a, a, a way that, that's harming them. I, I, I keep asking everyone this. Because I'm like, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist because there's too many conspiracy theories floating around out there. But like, I'm trying to think, especially with the New York Times story, right, about now 
intelligence officials saying, you know, meetings between Trump associates uh, in European capitals, right? And this is also from Dutch and British intel as well as American intel. Like, what do you think the most innocent explanation of all these contacts could be, right? Like, it's just... It's getting harder and harder to imagine what it is. Right. I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, I, I think you can always, and I say this for myself, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, paint anyone else with this brush, but... A lot of the things that went wrong in our White House, you could chalk up to, to you know, incompetence. Um, that's usually the, the, the most innocent explanation. But it's just getting harder and harder to imagine how so many people could forget so many conversations with so many Russians. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I thought the same thing. Like, it's... Uh... There is, you're right, there's, whenever something would go wrong in our White House, and I had a greater appreciation for things that I thought went wrong in the Bush White House after this, being in the White House for all those years, is that <laughs> everyone always subscribes, or scribes, like, nefarious motives, right? And a lot of times you're right. like, no, you know what, we were just, someone was an idiot, <laughs> someone made a mistake. It, but, like, when you have this many, there's only so many coincidences you can have before, um, you know, before, <laughs> before you have to start wondering if it's a little bit more than coincidence. Yeah, and why is it always Russia? I mean, why did Mike Flynn um, forget to tell Pence about Russia? Why did Jeff Sessions forget to answer the question about Russia? Um, why is Donald Trump only um, sweet to Vladimir Putin in terms of, you know, I mean, he's so skeptical of NATO, uh, made up of all of our allies, and he's so sweet to Vladimir Putin. It's just... It's just so many inexplicable, you know, situations, and and Putin is sort of at the root of all of it. If you were Nicole, if you were advising some of these Republicans who were up in twenty eighteen, um, how would what would you tell how would you tell them to handle the Sessions question specifically, and just the general uh, Trump Russia ties? Because you you know you're seeing people who are as you said, calling for recusal, people like Paul Ryan, who are just riding this thing all the way to the end. Like, what's your, what do you think the best political strategy is? You know, I mean, it's so corny, but it's, it's, you know, it's like, find your North Star. I mean, you know, I think that, that, that hugging up Donald Trump in terms of the things he talks about on the economic front and, and sort of, it's just harder for Republicans and Democrats, frankly, but, 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 starting to embrace some of his protectionist economic policies might make sense for some Republicans because that's where our party is. Frankly, that's where parts of your party has, you know, that's where yeah. Democrats ended up voting for Trump. I'm covering um, two-time Obama voters who voted for Trump, and a lot of them sort of stopped at the Bernie station along the way. I would advise them to be very supportive of, of Donald Trump's economic policies where they agree with them, but to be very skeptical of these unanswered questions about Russia. And uh, what's troubling to me is that so many Republicans can't locate that, that northern star. I mean, why can't you follow sort of uh, any sort of uh, the notion that John McCain and Lindsey Graham are, and and I guess now <laughs> Daryl Issa and and Rob Portman, but the idea that you can still tick off on one hand the number of people calling for more answers on Russia says something really troubling about today's Republican Party. Well, it seems like it's like this circular thinking, right? Where the Republicans in Congress stick with Trump on almost everything. Um, because, you know, he's got 85, 90 percent approval rating among Republican voters. 
Um, and so if you're a politician, you think, well, this is where my base is. I can't break with Donald Trump or I'm going to be in trouble with my base. But then you have to ask, why is the base there, right? Like <laughs> the base is there because they see Republican politicians saying, no, 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 the Democrats are lying. We're standing with Donald Trump. This is all fake news, right? Like, I don't know what breaks the cycle there. Well, and nobody in the base is with Donald Trump because he's nice to Russia. I mean, right? So that's just a, a loser. They like him despite the affinity for Putin. It's it's the head scratcher. And I've been out talking to voters, and I'm, they were happy to see Mike Flynn go. They were happy to see Donald Trump dispense with someone who had had conversations and not disclosed them. You know, the, the political risk for saying we should get to the bottom of any ties between, you know, Putin's uh, Kremlin and and the American election. The notion that, that any of them are in a defensive crouch about calling for more answers is really speaks to, to the weakness. It explains why Trump was able to hijack conservatism so completely in the process of the Republican primary. So you uh, you had a um, an interview on the Today Show where you talked to Trump voters in Bay City, Michigan. Um, it seems like a lot of them liked the speech from Tuesday night. Um mm-hmm. In your mind, I don't know if you've had addi- you had additional conversations with them, but what would what would it take to peel those voters away from Trump? What what would make them disappointed about him? Uh, it would take a lot. I mean, interesting. When, that was, I think, the seventh state I've been to that um, Trump flipped, either for the first time since Reagan. I mean, we, we've been to Pennsylvania, <laughs> Wisconsin, and um, and Michigan now, but or, or you know, states that. Um, that President Obama had won, uh, and, and and they're really, really um, in it to win it with this guy. I mean, they are in it for the economic revitalization. They are in it for the um, sort of stripped-down rhetoric. I mean, they, they sort of had all the hope and change they could take, and they are ready to um, hear from a guy who's sort of crass and blunt and, um, you know, one of them said to me in Bay City, I like that he talks the way I do. Um, you know, John F. Kennedy used to be sort of the rhetorical model and, 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 and your old boss, President Obama. I mean, you know, we used to aspire for leaders who elevated the dialogue. That's not the case with swing voters in America right now. They were looking for someone um, who they felt uh, communicated at their level. But what it would take to peel them away would be someone who came down to their 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 level and leveled with them. I mean, I think what they felt about Donald Trump was that he was telling them the truth. And it's so ironic, because I don't know that there's a politician in modern time who has lied more than Donald Trump about silly things. Um, so uh, it's a real, you know, I, I, it ties my brain in a knot in, in some ways. In other ways, it's sort of this, this phenomenon that was hiding in plain sight. I mean, people have lost faith in institutions. So it makes sense that someone that came in with a wrecking ball to everything that we sort of cherish about political institutions um, was viewed as more trustworthy than, than people like Jeb Bush or like Hillary Clinton, who were from established political um, families and, 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 and organizations. But I think to peel these voters away from him, he would have to come up short on his promises. And I think they're going to give him years, not months to do that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like, I, I, in my mind, I can get why um, a lot of them wanted to give him a chance, right? Because of the unbelievable distaste with politics and distrust of political institutions in general, and also political language from leaders that sounds bullshitty, right? Um, right. But at some point, 
it seems like he Ooh, has to say, deliver. You can say bullshit on a podcast. Oh, so on the, on happens. this one you can. You can yeah, swear we, all you want. We got the explicit rating, so we are good to go. We had Katie, Katie Couric was swearing on this podcast the other week, and she, she was, yeah, that's so exciting. <laughs> um, no, I guess, but the the question about the economic agenda has me wondering because, you know, you were saying you would advise Republicans to sort of stick with Trump on the economic stuff. Well, you can imagine a Trump agenda where he's, um, you know, sort of renegotiates NAFTA, right? He's already pulled out of TPP. Um, It also seems like he would keep his promise not to cut Medicare, Social Security, even Medicaid, right? Like you'd imagine an Obamacare replacement that is still very generous to working class Americans who need help buying health insurance. You would imagine tax reform that sort of offers a big uh, working to middle class tax cut, right? All these, all these policies that seem very much at odds with the Paul Ryan, Mike Pence wing of the party. And I'm wondering, do you think Ryan and Pence and, and the Republicans move to Donald Trump? Or do you think um, it's going to be tough to get something out of this Republican Congress? I mean, listen, I think Paul Ryan died a thousand deaths on election night. I mean, he's not just a sort of conservative in the mold of, you know, believing in free trade and believing in, um, you know, economic policies that sort of hew to the very traditions of conservatism. He's an architect of the modern version of those policies. So, you know, will he move to Donald Trump and Trumpism? Is a, is a political calculation on his part, not a policy question. We know he doesn't believe in any of those things. He's been the, the creator of policies that are all rooted in the opposite philosophy than what Donald Trump believes in and, and, um, and campaigned on and, and plans to make so. So, um, I, and, and, you know, when I said I would advise Republicans to go along, it's not because I, I believe in any of those things. I worked for a president who, who is still... Um, in a book tour this week, talking about the perils of isolationism and nativism and protectionism. But, um, you know, the political reality is that if you want to get anything done, um, this is Donald Trump's moment. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. He, he achieved this victory without any help from the Republican establishment. The Republican establishment was as uncomfortable with him as the Democratic establishment was. And so he owes them nothing. So if they want to get anything done, they are definitely going to have to move to him because he has no motivation. He has no debt to them. And and um, and, I, and I just don't I don't I don't see him. I, don't, I can't even imagine the conversation where they walk in and say, you know, you, you can't futz with NAFTA. And what does Donald Trump say? Oh, OK. I mean, he campaigned on it. He won on it and he converted lifelong blue-collar Democrats to his column for the first time since Ronald Reagan. I just think Paul Ryan, he may fight that fight, but I think he'll lose that fight. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't even seem like he's actually going to fight it. Um, as you look as a veteran of a you know White House communications operation, I, I was going to ask, how do you think the Trump White House comms operation is doing? But that's kind of a probably an easy question. So, like, what... <laughs> Like, we've all dealt with leaks in our times in the White House. You know, how do you think that, you know, Sean Spicer and the Trump guys are dealing with that, and what should they do differently? You know, I talked to Sean this week. He's a, he, I'm sure you guys know, I mean, he's a really nice guy um, with an impossible job. I, um, 
I mean, you know, I didn't work in a very leaky White House, but it wasn't because we didn't have cell phone numbers of reporters. It was because we had a rigorous internal process. You know, we could have screaming matches. There weren't a lot of them, but we could have really big fights. And we could even take those fights if we couldn't get to an agreement to the president and and have him weigh in. And even if we weren't happy with, with the outcome, everyone sort of, there, there was a really rigorous process for for sort of making your case and taking it all the way to the president. If you lost, you lost. You'd you hope to win the next time. But if you lost and you leak, you wouldn't make it back into the Oval Office to make your case next time. So there was a process for airing your side, and there was sort of a promise that, 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 that you know, that would, that would continue to be the process, that, that, that you'd get to air your, um, you know, concerns about a current strategy. And obviously, in my case, often it was a communication strategy or a decision to go to an event or not go to an event. Or uh, Dan Bartlett and I were involved in a series of speeches um, when public support for the Iraq war had sort of fallen out, the bottom had fallen out. Uh, and we suggested a series of speeches acknowledging mistakes in the military strategy and the diplomatic strategy. And there was a lot of opposition. And we made our case, and, and we prevailed, and, and, and only, I think, you know, two years later was it aired that there were some people that, that had some questions about it, but, but it never leaked out at the time that we were having this robust debate inside the White House about whether or not to do something. So my point is leaks are never the cause of anything. They're a symptom, and, and my guess is it's a symptom of, of the lack of any sort of process for having debates internally and the knowledge that Donald Trump reads all of his press coverage. So if they want to say something to the president, just leak it. They know he'll read it. You know, when I think about the current incarnation of the Republican Party, um, which is now Trump's party and Trumpism in general, I, I always trace it back to at least the first time I noticed this sort of shift was, you know, Sarah Palin, right? Uh, during In 2008, yeah. which I know you were part of that campaign and very public that you had plenty of problems with it. But when you were when you were on that campaign, did you sort of see this coming? You know, were there hints that this might be where the party goes, or at least a big chunk of the party goes? <laughs> I wrote a piece um, for the New York Times in January about this. I mean, I, I was not aware at the time, but I should have been. I, I mean, I was I was traveling with both John McCain and Sarah Palin, and John McCain's events remained, you know, sort of small by presidential political standards and her events were like obama size rallies i mean they were massive and people were um people were were just thrilled by her attacks on the lamestream media by her attacks <laughs> on republican operatives and by the end she was openly attacking her own campaign advisors at rallies and people were going crazy which is sort of the first version of trumpism where he sort of openly attacks um, other members of the Republican establishment and the media at his rally. So she definitely was, was Trump 1.0. And I think that, you know, the, 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 the efforts to try to turn her into a more traditional politician were so wrongheaded. I mean, she was sort of ahead of her time in a bizarre way. And, um, you know, the, the, the problem with letting it rip was that she wasn't at the top of the ticket. John McCain was. And, and so ultimately we ran the campaign that he wanted run. But there, the moment I think that he's remembered for for his candidacy was confronting one of his own supporters who called President Obama a Muslim. And he said, no, 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 we disagree. But he's an American and a patriot and we just have different ideas on policy. Well, there were people shouting the same sorts of things at Sarah Palin's rallies, and 
you know, she, she, she never confronted that kind of nativism. And, um, and so, you know, I think that was the first sign that, that the party had gone somewhere very different and, and, and I think dark. Nicole, do you think if more people had done what John McCain did in the Republican Party over the last few years, you, we might be in a different place? Because after McCain lost, it felt to me, at least someone who was on the other end of these attacks, that a lot of people in the Republican Party, um, particularly the ones on the Hill, were sort of just, they wanted to ride this tiger as opposed to do anything about it. Yeah, and I'd say that after, after you know, John McCain's loss, you know, um, John Boehner was sort of the next casualty of... Um, um. Of, of sort of a, a civilized Republican party. And then it just became very primal and very tribal. And um, it's never the fault of the voters. You, know, you don't blame the voters. They were just, there was something they were, there was a deficiency in what they were getting from the Republican establishment. The establishment grew so detached from its base, they continued to champion free trade. Well, that's not where the base of the Republican party was anymore. They continued to, um, you know, advocate a, a, a foreign policy that had sort of exhausted um, the, the party in terms of being champions for uh, intervening in, in faraway wars. They had, I mean, the party had just changed, and it's not it's not the voters' job to keep up with the establishment. It's the Republican establishment's job to keep up with the voters, and, and just a colossal failure to do so, and... and uh, laid bare and, and revealed during the Republican primary when you know, every week another one bit the dust. I mean, it was, it was just a, you know, one after another establishment Republican figure viewed as strong and viable um, before that contest uh, was really underway, tumbled at, 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 and really withered away um, when Donald Trump faced them. Uh, one last question. We'll let you go. What uh, you, since you've been talking to so many of these voters, uh, specifically Trump Obama voters, what kind of um, what kind of Democrat do you think Donald Trump should be most afraid of? I think that if someone sort of emerges from from this part of the electorate, this sort of working class voter, um, you know, a, a working class politician, you know, someone who is a not the son or daughter of a union worker, but an actual union worker themselves, someone who understands how, you know, we, we, we in the political class fight about trade and NAFTA as policy debates. These guys lived it. They watched, you know, factories, um, you know, that were once sort of glowing and sparkling, you know, just become wastelands and, and, you know, with windows that don't get replaced and parking lots with no cars in them. I mean, it needs to be someone that lived that life, I think. Um, who sort of rises up and makes the economic populist argument without all of the nativism and tribalism and, and without all the isms, you know, without the protectionism, with, with the understanding that we have to be part of, um, you, you know, we have to be a trading partner to other markets. Otherwise, you, you know, lettuce and tomatoes will cost $60 each. I mean, you know, no one is making the case for capitalism in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, really, in a way that resonates with working-class Americans. And um, I, I think it also has to be someone that that speaks a more inclusive sort of um, script on um, diversity. I, I think a lot of these voters felt insulted by the national conversations that ensued after Ferguson and after... Um, 
some of the cases, the egregious, horrific, and unforgivable cases of police brutality. But I think a lot of these voters experience them in a way that, that, that we, as part of establishment politics and elite media, didn't understand. I think they felt like all police officers had been indicted in the conversation that ensued after Ferguson. And, and that wasn't how they felt about the police. So I think that, that, that liberals and elites started painting a lot of social problems with too broad of a brush, and it left too many people out of the conversation or, or feeling like they didn't, they didn't recognize the divide. So I think someone that, that they themselves sort of lived the economic despair that these people live with and I think someone that can speak about diversity and, and culture and social issues in a way that isn't condescending and judgmental will be the kind of Democrat that could give Donald Trump a run for his money. All right. I'm sure that person will be easy to find. Um, <laughs> she's, on, she's on the other line. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. And please come back soon. We appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks, Nicole. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. That's all for today. Thanks again to Nicole Wallace for joining us. Uh, remember, tomorrow, listen to With Friends Like These. Anna Marie Cox has a, uh, a new episode. And other than that, we'll talk to you on Monday. Bye, guys. Bye.